show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Ellery. What's the tea? What is the tea? Well, I've been told I'm drinking tea. So I'm drinking tea and thinking about tea. And that's the tea. The tea is we're drinking tea. We're talking about tea. It's our, I think now, traditional first sober show of the year. So Happy New Year, first of all. And this is our non-alcoholic Kick start to the year for anyone who needs to be eased in gently. Soz. <laughs> so to speak. Um, tea, by the way, what's the tea? I was, I mean, you probably know where that's from, right? The phrase, what's the tea? Of course. Drag queens galore. What's the tea? Yes, exactly. I was wondering if there was, if there were kind of any legitimate links to the drink tea, T-E-A. Um, but it does seem that it has, it did just come out of drag culture and the original reference to it was just the letter T and not mm-hmm. T-E-A, which we do sometimes now find when it's, when it's written down or mm-hmm. even that people, you know, have teacups to do what's the tea. But the, the original reference I can find at least written down is in, uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the book by John Berent. Um, in it, he's um, he's interviewing Lady Shabley, who was a, a drag a drag performer in Savannah, um, interviewing about dating life, and um, she says that she avoids certain men because they're prone to violence when they find out her tea. And he says, "Your tea?" You know, questioning me. She's like, "Yeah, my tea, my thing, my business. What's going on in my life?" <laughs> so that kind of it's obviously come out of drag culture but that's the first time it's written down and then a uh, lady shavley does write her own autobiography later on and also um writes the letter t saying it stands for my truth and that was in the 90s mm. that it comes from but we do think it's also probably because most things have two meanings in drag culture it probably is a riff on how um particularly in the u.s where it was used in the south um, women would like to gather around and gossip over iced tea or sweet tea. So it's yeah, probably a bit always, of a riff on that. I always thought that it had something to do with the whole spill the gossip, spill the tea. There was something there as well. <clears throat> yeah, well, spill the tea does come from that. But but as I say, it seems like the earlier references, they do just use the letter T and they're referring to truth. So it's kind of unclear as to how conscious that association with an actual cup of tea really is. Mm-hmm. But there are other idioms to do with tea that we have earlier references to. So, you know, something being your cup of tea or not your cup of tea? Yes. So that comes in Britain in the late 19th century, being my cup of tea in the positive. So we see quite a few references towards the end of the 19th century about things being my cup of tea. And the negative comes a bit later. It's popularised a bit more in this country after um, after the Second World War in the 1940s, but you see earlier references to it in America about something not being a cup of tea, and I think that's because of antagonism with the British um, and that they, which I will come on to later about them not drinking tea. Um, mm. But and there's another one, storm in a teacup, 
Um, and that one is seen readily in Britain um, from the late, no, from the early 19th century. But it does exist in different forms worldwide. So some places it's tempest in a teapot, some places it's a storm in a water. So they still say storm in the water in France, for example, but they use it in every culture. Some sort of tempest or storm or kerfuffle in a liquid. And we can find that as early as Cicero in the first century BCE, where he says, um, he says the line tempest in a ladle. So that one's much more ubiquitous than I thought it was going to be, storm in a teapot. Hmm. My favourite one, which is something we are doing right now we will have done in preparation um is bitch the pot (laughs) what (laughs) we we have bitched the pot um so it's slang for hosting a tea party in victorian england um you would if you were leading it you would be bitching the pot or you would be the standing bitch um (laughs) (laughs) and it's even where the phrase to bitch comes from which means to make tea but then it was also associated with you know women kind of sitting around gossiping so it started as quite a derogatory thing from from uh, male college students who would refer to tea drinking as bitch parties right Um, i like that though i'd be down for that <laughs> yeah, they sound well, jealous. It, it seems just so jealous. I mean, I think that's part of it, right? They were having like their own sort of secret get together, and you know, they're saying, "Oh, tea's only for old ladies." Um, although it, there are references to people being called an excellent bitch, and that's if they're particularly graceful with their tea hosting parties. So I think it was sort of slightly reclaimed, but there is a lot of um, there is a lot of like gendered slagging off of tea parties so uh, tea comes to be known as prattle broth or chatter broth or scandal broth and cat lap um and you could go to a tea fight or a muffin worry <laughs> which i really like <laughs> that sounds like a medical term <laughs> i need to go to the doctor worry. i've got some muffin worries <laughs> if, if anyone has <laughs> Uh, what we've got to remember is, you know, because women, as we found out from last year's coffee house uh, episode, were excluded largely from the coffee houses. So this was like their version of it. So there is definitely like some anger from the men that women have found an alternative to the coffee houses. Um, and also it was popularized in the mid 17th century by Catherine of Braganza, who was Charles II's wife. Um, she was Portuguese. She was actually not very popular in this country. Um, but coming from Portugal, they had quite a strong tradi- tradition of tea drinking and brought it with her. Um, and, you know, with that brought, I suppose, more opportunities for women. It was cheaper than coffee. You didn't have to go to a coffee house. You could do it at home. Um, she also has a kind of another effect with tea, which is that as part of her dowry, Charles II sort of um, acquired the seven islands of Bombay. And so that became part of the British Empire and then later the headquarters for the East India Company, which moved its presidency there. So Bombay, which is now Mumbai, became one of these main cities in India because of it being her dowry sort of indirectly. Mm-hmm. Um, derogatory terms still exist to do with uh, tea and uh, ladies. Oh dear. Particularly in China. So um, you might find someone called a green tea bitch. Um, which Again, is... I would completely claim that. <laughs> well, let's let's see if you fit the description. This is one of the worst things, apparently, that you can call a self-respecting Chinese woman. A green tea bitch is a pure... I mean, we're already I'm failing. Out. <laughs> <laughs> 
is a pure, fresh-faced, pretty, sugar-sweet, cute, innocent-looking, absolute bitch. Yeah, I'm kind of like one out of any of those boxes. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm with you. I've got, there are other versions. So you've also got Coffee Bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite a, a well-used term on their social media platform, Weibo. And that's high-end office ladies who constantly mix English and Chinese and they dress according to the latest fashions and they like taking lots of pictures of themselves in fancy restaurants or on beaches. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of what we'd call a basic bitch, I think. Yeah, basic bitch. And then there's black tea bitch. Um, now, this might be a little bit more up your street. Um, oh, here we go. Black, a black tea bitch <laughs> is a promiscuous girl who smokes, drinks, and likes eyeliner and low-cut clothes that show her cleavage. Black tea bitch, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't smoke, but the rest of it's fine. Yeah, the rest of it. I <laughs> bloody love my eyeliner. <laughs> you really do. Um, so there we go. I thought we'd just start with some idioms and in particular try and reclaim the term bitch the pot because I feel like it's so much better than I'll put the tea on. I mean, I'm claiming black tea bitch and yeah, we're going to bitch the pot a hell of a lot more. That's my new mm-hmm. resolution. Yeah, bitch the pot more. Uh, should we do some history? Yeah, always. All right. So the first thing about tea is 245 billion litres are consumed commercially every year. So it's the most popular beverage behind water. That is just tea, the tea plant tea. That's an enormous amount. I mean, I am one of those people that <clears throat> classes tea as my main intake of water. People always tell me yeah. I don't drink enough. I don't drink enough water. But I'm like, no. I, whatever, I drink loads of tea. <laughs> so I'm yeah, yeah. Exactly. It is hydrating though. Some people think that because it has caffeine in it, um, it dehydrates you and it doesn't really hydrate you. But it does. It does hydrate you. There's not enough um, not enough caffeine to make that happen. So it's still good for you. Keep on drinking it. It's very good for you actually. Um, tea plants then, we can trace back to quite a specific date of 2737 BCE. Uh, and that's just because we have a record from the legendary herbalist Emperor Shen Nung of China. Um, when some wild tea leaves fell into a concoction he was making. And then after he tried it, he felt revived and better. Uh, and he named it Cha in Mandarin Chinese. Cup of cha. Cha, cup of cha. Um, My but dad then there always are no... calls it that. Sorry. Yeah, there's, well, there. I'll, get on, I'll get on to kind of the terms people use in a bit, um, but they are like all really similar kind of world, worldwide, and we do use all of them. Um so there are no other references to it, though, for over a thousand years, <laughs> which is a bit weird, um, until around the first millennium BCE, where we start to find surviving tea accessories. And there's a story that tea drinking spread from India into China through Buddhism. But there's actually no real evidence for this. It's just a popular story. We do know that tea grew naturally throughout China, India, Myanmar, and Thailand region. So it was probably consumed medicinally around there, because why wouldn't you? Um, But as a widely consumed cultural beverage, it was definitely China who led the way. So that's where we sort of agree it comes from, more or less. Um, But it was Buddhist monks, actually, that brought tea from China to Japan. And that was in the 8th century CE. So for travel purposes, they did this in the form of compressed cakes, which gave rise to what we now know as matcha tea, where you break off a small piece of the cake and you grind it into powder, and then you whisk it with hot water into a frothy brew. 
so in China, green tea, green tea infusion was the most popular. And we don't really see black tea until the 16th century uh, CE in the Fujian province. Then by the 17th century, the British and the Dutch traders are starting to ship Chinese tea to Europe and the East India Company fuels the thirst for black gold, as they call it. So it spreads to North America in the later part of the 17th century. And in 1773, we have those infamous tea taxes on the British colonies, which results in the Boston Tea Party, where a group of colonists who are dressed as Native Americans throw the tea from the British ships into the harbour. Uh, I think a lot of people know that much. There's a couple of things people don't necessarily know. Um, one, first of all, it was green tea uh, that they the threw into tea, the harbour. In my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> the, the worst tea. Um, so we can now all understand it a little bit better. Um, <laughs> I love they, that. Oh, we're going to, in our rage, we're going to throw the tea, but the shit tea, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, but it was green. Uh, yeah, Americans didn't really develop the taste for black tea until the 19th century. So they were like a little bit later. Um, also, though, there were about 10 incidents of this happening along the East Coast. It wasn't just in Boston, although that's the most famous. Uh, but that helped lead the way to the American Revolutionary War. Um, and then also as America's preference for coffee rather than tea. That sort of stigma still remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, the East India Company's monopoly on tea created quite a lot of political tension between Britain and China. So they decided that they needed to seek out some alternative sources. So in 1788, the British started seizing fields in India. And then they followed a few decades later with Japan, with Taiwan and Sri Lanka, or Ceylon, as it was known then. Then in Mm -hmm. 1835, Britain annexed Darjeeling in the northeast of India and also employed a Scotsman named Robert Fortune to smuggle tea seeds and seedlings out of China and into India. What a name, Robert Fortune. Robert Fortune, tea smuggler. Tea spy, he was. (laughs) Tea spy. He was a tea spy. So this tea espionage was actually one of the contributing factors to the Opium Wars of 1839. Um... And in the years after, Britain had managed to increase its imports from those other countries that it had sort of smuggled those, you know, seedlings and seeds out and and claimed land other places and grown them. So they no longer had to rely on China anymore. But already, like in quite a short period of time, tea has caused two major wars, (laughs) the Opium (laughs) Wars and the American Revolution. It is a contentious history, this uh, this beverage. (laughs) Um, so I so said they expanded their, their presence in other countries. Uh, for example, you know, one you'll probably know in 1890, Thomas Lipton, who was another Scotsman, actually, um, established his tea company, Lipton, um, from Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. And he really was the one who popularised packaged tea worldwide, packaged in general. I won't go into the specific. Um, but there'll, there'll be a famous earlier one than 1890 that, you know, which is Twinings, um, because, you know, partly the ubiquity of, of Twinings is that it hasn't changed its logo. It's the world's oldest commercial logo that's been in continuous use since it was designed in 1787. And the Royal Warrant still sits above the door. It ain't broke. There you go. That was my very rapid condensed history of tea and its various wars. <laughs> so I really enjoyed, thank you. Who knew uh-huh. it was just such a angsty drink? Yep. <clears throat> um, do you enjoy a tea bag? 
That's a loaded question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> if you're asking me, do I use tea bags to make tea? The answer is no. That's not. I do what not. I, was asking you. I am loose <laughs> all the way. <laughs> um, interesting. Mm-hmm. You never use tea bags. No. Well, no. no. Only, only someone's if doing someone well. Has... <laughs> well, you say that, but it's cheaper. Yeah. I think that's... people think that loose leaf tea is fancier, but you actually get a lot more for your money with loose leaf because mm-hmm. you're not paying for extra packaging. So you get all the weight is actually the tea. And because it's, it circulates better in the water, you actually don't need to use as much of it either. So yep. it's cheaper. It is. And fancier. And it doesn't have microplastics. <laughs> I cannot be asked with it. That's my right. excuse. Okay. <laughs> I do have like a little infuser. It's a little pug. And you twist it in half. And mm-hmm. then you put your loose leaf tea in there. Twist them together. And these little paws hang on the edge of the mug. And you fill it I up. Can, I can picture it. Yeah. It's cute. <laughs> can never be asked though. Um, so yeah, tea bags. Got to talk about tea bags. Uh, it's pretty much, I'm going to tell you about the million and one patents <laughs> around tea bags because... <laughs> okay. Do I need to put on my patent law glasses just yes, to uh, prepare myself? Okay. So the first patent dates back to around 1903. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, back then they weren't kind of like how we know modern day tea bags. They were fabric bags and they were hand sewn and they were kind of like little sacks, essentially, not rectangular or round. It's mm-hmm. like a nice little fabric sack, hand sewn. They um, appeared commercially around 1904, and then they were successfully marketed in around 1908 by a guy from New York. His name was Thomas Sullivan, and he was a tea and coffee importer. Now, there is um, a kind of urban myth but i'm pretty sure it sounds like marketing bullshit (laughs) okay uh, i've got my finger poised over the myth busting (laughs) jingle well the legend states that it was an actual accident that tea bags were invented by this chap thomas Mm -hmm. sullivan um well they weren't invented by him obviously he just imported them um but apparently the loose tea that was in those um hand sewn bags was intended to be removed and used like loose leaf tea but people who were buying them actually found it easier to brew the bags in with a cap or the pot. So they were like, oh, we're onto something here, tea bags. But I just think it's nonsense. Because if there was a patent from 1903, surely they were aware that that was a thing. Because it was yeah. five years later that he was importing it and going, oh, whoops, they accidentally used them like the way the patent intended. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm with you on that one, not only for patent, but also because obviously if it's suitable for, you know, to, to use as a diffuser, it wouldn't keep mm-hmm. the tea fresh. Like tea, tea absorbs other kind of smells really easily and it actually goes stale really quickly if you leave it on mm-hmm. the open air. So if you packaged it in something that was permeable, it wouldn't taste very nice. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. So yeah, I think I call bullshit. Um, so once tea bags became a thing, people were like, yep, going to use these all the time. It was then quickly, rapidly growing across the UK 
and the first teabag packing machine was invented in 1929 by a chap called Adolf Rambold, and that was for the German company Teacan. Shortly after the teabag packing machine came another invention in 1930, which was, of course, patented, and that was for a heat-sealed paper fibre teabag. So mm-hmm. that was when we started to move away from fabric bags and hand-sewn bags. People um, were no longer using <clears throat> their sacks to teabag. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But they were still a sack shape. <laughs> right. So although they were made from paper fibre and heat-sealed, they were still like little sacks. They weren't mm-hmm. rectangular. It wasn't until 1944 that the common rectangle shape was invented. Um, so if we fast forward to more modern times, so beyond 1944, right up to 1997, <laughs> I know that round tea bags came in between, but that was when the real kind of innovation started slapping consumers in the face, when tea, PG Tips um, slapped their tea bags in the face of consumers that were tetrahedral shaped. <sighs> Wild. <sighs> breaking, breaking all laws of dimension. And this was... Basically because over these years we'd kind of really got into our tea bags, we got a bit snotty about our tea, we were, um, some people just didn't like tea bags because like you said, they don't circulate as well, it's not as tasty, um, you can buy tea bags with loose leaves in them, they're a lot bigger because obviously the loose leaves need to move around a lot more, but um, mm-hmm. generally tea bags are not as high quality because they're filled what's known in the industry as dust and fannings, which is the little loose bits of the <clears throat> larger, more quality loose tea. So they'll pick the nice, chunky, loose tea, loose tea to put into the schmancia pots, and then, of course, the leftovers are the dust and fannings, and they're scooped up and put into tea bags. So mm-hmm. they aren't... Things swept up off the floor, basically. Yes, swept up <laughs> off the floor. <laughs> um, so... Obviously, paper fibre was starting to be used, but people were trying to get a bit more fancy with their tea bags. So silk and silk cotton was sometimes used, but obviously for commercial reasons, cheaper materials were sourced. So we had the introduction of nylon or polythylene. Um, (coughs) PG tips actually had a lot of nasty PR because they were using a lot of nylon and plastic in their pyramid tea bags. So after a lot of consumer pushback more recently they've moved to silk and silk cotton there's no plastic in their tea bags anymore mm-hmm. the brits uh we were quite slow to embrace tea bags actually even Doesn't as surprise late, me <laughs> even as proud. Late, uh, i'm not proud i still use them <laughs> enjoy a tea bagging uh yeah even as late as the early 60s we were accounting for just three percent of the market tea bag market mm-hmm. Um, which is wild, and I actually I I forgot to ask my mum this today, but I was going to ask her like, do you remember how you used to brew tea as a kid? Because if we were only doing three percent of the market, I'm guessing they were having loose leaf tea. Just interested to know how yeah. my mum remembered tea being brewed. Uh, but anyway, now we account for ninety six percent of the tea bag market in the global share. So that is a lot of teabagging from the Brits there. It is a hell of a lot of teabagging. Well, there's no point asking you about the my next couple of statements because you're a posh teabag bitch. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can ask me anyway and I could imagine what I might do if I was basic. Well, 
I've got a list of five common mistakes that people are making when they're using tea bags. Oh, okay. A shit cup of tea. All right, no, tell me, and I'll just I'll revel in that. <laughs> I don't do that <laughs> moment of it. Uh, number one, squeezing your bag. Oh, okay. Uh, so a lot of people do that, me included. I know it's bad. I knew before I did my research it was bad, but I still do mm-hmm. it. Um, so s- most people do it because it obviously makes the tea darker. They think it makes it stronger and more flavour, but it's not actually releasing extra good flavour. Because uh, of the high levels of tannic acid in tea, it's actually making your tea bitter. Yeah. Um, and also, I've had this before where I've got a bit overzealous with my bag squeezing. And mm-hmm. it ripped and loose <sighs> tea went everywhere. <laughs> Nothing worse than a torn bag. Exactly. So it was a bitter bag of crap. <laughs> um, interesting one, this. Uh, not reusing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does depend on what tea you're having. Like, more often than not, black tea generally is a kind of single-use tea bag. But um, more often with green or white tea... It's better on the second cup if you're reusing your bags. There's mm-hmm. actually a tea that I've got. I'm down to my last tea bag, and I love it so much. It's a Christmas tea. It's a white tea, and it's got like cloves and cinnamon and orange, and it's just delicious. And that's always best on the second bag. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so strong that sometimes if you leave the tea bag in for like more than thirty seconds, it's just too much, and I don't enjoy it. But that second brew on that bag of tea, oh, it's so good. <laughs> so yeah, if, you, if you're a fan of white or green tea, reuse your bags. Um, number three, wrong types of bags. So you mentioned earlier about the microplastics. Um, so yeah, if you don't want chemicals and other nasty stuff in your bags, avoid tea bags with plastic in them. But also, a lot of the paper fibre tea bags are also mixed in with um, wood or vegetable pulp which are quite kind of brown coloured. <clears throat> so in order to make them look nice and white, um, they're chlorine bleached. So if you don't mm-hmm. want chlorine in your tea as well, avoid those. Uh, number four, leaving your bag in too long. Um, time varies based on what types of tea leaves you've got, but check the instructions, like I mentioned, too long and it goes very bitter. Mm-hmm. And number five, stop using tea bags was the expert's advice. <laughs> <laughs> Told ya. So it's made of dust and fannins and other shit like eyelids and whatever they put in chicken nuggets. So uh, <laughs> stop using it's, tea bags. It's the um, street hot dog of the uh, beverage world. <laughs> I do. I feel like it's the chicken nugget of the McDonald's chicken nugget of the hot drinks. <laughs> And you were shocked that I don't use them. (laughs) Honestly. Um, Oh, good. As a loose leaf tea man, then, Mm. do you just put it in a pot and then pour over a strainer? Or do you have nice bags that you put the loose leaf tea in? No, no. I have have a a, a teapot with like a built-in infuser. So I I put the tea in there and then the water in the teapot. Well, should you want to get a fancy bag, the um, mm-hmm. the unusual gift company online for eight ninety nine have an extra large reusable testicle shaped tea bag. Oh, okay, great. So. Thanks. Yep. I will bear that in mind for when I have treasured guests. 
<laughs> coming for afternoon tea. When the Queen comes round for afternoon tea, I shall get my testicular bag out for a good tea bagging. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, well, thanks for that. Um, we couldn't have done this episode without that amount of um, punning smut, so thanks for being <laughs> the one to, to take that on the chin. On, on, um, on, so, on that black, black tea bitch. <laughs> yep, you are that black tea bitch. Um, can I do some etymology, just for a change of tone? Um, when do you not? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to start with some science, science etymology, some taxonomy. So the Swedish botanist Carolus Linnaeus published Systema Naturale in 1735, which assigned the term camellia to a group of flowering plants from Asia. But at the time, that didn't include tea. Um, You may have noticed I pronounced it camellia and not camellia, which you might be more familiar with. And that's because Linnaeus wanted to honour Georg Camel, who was a Jesuit missionary priest in the Philippines, whose Latin name would be Camelus. And he contributed to knowledge on Asian botany. So properly, camellias should be camellias. Um, But Linnaeus did know of tea, even though he didn't include it in that genus at the time because um, he saw the Dutch importing it from Java. And they and um, they called it tea, T-E, um, from its source in Java. And so he called it this Latin name, Tia Sinensis. Um, he spelt it T-H-E-A. And I'm not sure whether it's meant to be pronounced like Tia or Thea because it's also named after Thea, the Greek goddess, who was the mother of Helios, the sun, Mm -hmm. Eos, the dawn, and Selene, the moon. Um, So he was really trying to, like, you know, elevate this as an important plant. So some, some I think, say Thea and some say Thea. Um, But let's call it Thea because it works for something that I want to talk about later on. Um, The sinensis part uh, just means from China. Sinensis is, is Latin. Um, Also, some botanists thought that green and black tea were different species because, you know, they were European. Um, And so they called them Thea viridis, viridis is Latin for green, or Thea bohia, which refers to the hills where it originated and it's not anything to do with bohemia. And then in 1818, it was discovered that the tea plant was in fact part of the Camellia genus and they renamed it Camellia thea. So in 1905, they realised it was all one species. So tea is one plant, it's one species, there are different varieties, but that's it, it's just that one thing, tea. Um, So they eventually then fixed it on Camellia sinensis. And one more thing to say about thea, or theist. A theist is someone who's addicted to tea. Um, mm. And also someone who believes in a god. Because <laughs> they're spelt exactly the same. Exactly. So if you are if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in tea, you're atheist. So we mentioned this, this earlier about kind of all the words for tea sounding quite similar. So nearly all the words for tea worldwide fall into three broad groups. Tea, cha and chai. So it's been present in English as, um, as, as all of them, but the earliest of the three to enter English is cha, which came in the 1590s, and that came in from the Portuguese who were trading with Macau. 
and picked up the Cantonese pronunciation of the word cha, which was the first one I mentioned. Uh, the more common form that we use now, tea, came in the 17th century, and that came from the Dutch rather than the Portuguese, and they acquired it indirectly from the Malay te, T-E-H, or directly uh, T-E from the Min Chinese. Um, the the tea thing actually is um, is funny because in, in English it was first pronounced as tay, T-A-Y, tay. You want a cup of tay? And it's sometimes still pronounced that way in existing dialects in English. I know, for example, I've, I've heard members of my family call it tay. Ah, cup of tay. Um, pronounced somewhat ironically, but also clearly like a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one, chai, uh, means spiced tea, and that originates from um, the northern Chinese pronunciation of cha, chai, uh, which travelled overland to Central Asia and Persia, where it picked up that Persian ending, which is yi, so it's chai yi. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you go. Those are kind of the main main kind of words of tea. But that in almost every language, you're going to recognise it. It's going to be sort of one of those variants, apart from some real outliers like Polish, for some reason, it isn't related to any of those, and I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to. <laughs> um, <laughs> types of tea, then. So it takes three to five years for a tea plant to mature, um, with the new growth on the tips being the um, the highest prize for the flavour. This means that quite a lot of tea is still plucked by hand, with the mm-hmm. bushes pruned to waist height, because that maximises the harvest potential. Um, there are places that do use machine plucking, but it, it tends to mean that the quality is not going to be as good. Um, so as we know, there's only one species of tea plants, and different types of tea can occur through processing. That doesn't mean that there aren't variations in different locations, like you get longer and broader leaves, or you get better quality coming from higher altitudes. Um, in much the same way you would with wine, for example, you'll taste the difference because of the terroir. It's the same thing with tea, but it is all still the same species. Mm-hmm. Um, all tea, when it's processed, undergoes withering, which is the natural drying process that happens in the open. And it can be anything from a few hours for something like white and green teas to a whole day for black and oolong. Um, that drops the levels of water and CO2 and also chlorophyll, and it increases the levels of caffeine and amino acids, which have uh, broken down from the proteins and the fats and the carbs, along with volatile oils that then contribute to the flavour. Then they're rolled, crushed or twisted by hand or machine, and that um, gets the juices flowing and releases the enzymes. And then oxidation follows that, which is like withering, but it's at a higher temperature. So they're all kind of um, spread out in a warmer room, about 20 to 30 degrees C. The oolong is partially oxidised and the black tea is fully oxidised, but you wouldn't get that for the um, white and green. And then firing happens and that stops the oxidation by blowing hot air over it. So 60 to 77 degrees C for up to an hour. And that kills the enzymes so that they then don't grow mould. So after that, they're sorted into different grades of size by sifting. So the smaller pieces, as you said, the fannings and and the the dust will end up in tea bags. um, And the bigger pieces will maybe end up in a nice loose leaf. Um, The caffeine levels, by the way, stay more or less the same across the different types of tea. Some people, for some reason, think that maybe green tea doesn't have caffeine in it but it it, it does it has the same sometimes slightly more 
Um, but green tea, and especially matcha tea, does have more of the principal amino acid called L-theanine. So while caffeine might energize us, L-theanine binds to the neurotransmitters and aids stress reduction. And that's why tea can be both reviving and relaxing at the same time. So sometimes, you know, kind of people have both of those. Sometimes they have more of one and the other. Personally, because I don't really react to caffeine, you know, I can drink a lot of coffee and not really notice. So for me, tea is quite relaxing. I don't kind of get that reviving mm-hmm. caffeine effect. Same. Um, so black and green teas differ because of the oxidizing and the firing process. Oolong is in between, but is also defined by having quite complex flavors, the oolong. The most expensive varieties are actually compared to whiskies in the way that they're traded. You can get really expensive varieties. And then white teas are made only with the buds and the newest growth um, on the tea bush. And then they're only withered and dried. So they have quite a mild flavour, but they're actually the highest in antioxidants. They have like all that good stuff in the buds. And then there's a rarer one called Pu'er. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, in fact, it's, it's, so, it's so rare and in demand that it's often counterfeited. It's quite a counterfeit trade going on in tea around Pu'er and Darjeeling and some others. Um, so Pu'er is a tea that's been pressed into cakes and then aged potentially for years Mm -hmm. Um, and it's inoculated with microorganisms and then ripened so kind of like a cheese really Um, and it actually does taste a bit cheesy and mossy Uh, Mm -hmm. and that's a process that goes back about 2,000 years so teas can be single origin but anything you get in a tea bag is likely to be a blend of something good with something more mass-produced usually from Kenya for example they produce quite a lot of uh, tea that ends in tea bags Um, And aside from those, anything else is going to be a speciality tea of sorts. So it might be smoked tea like Lapsang Souchong, which was probably discovered in the early 1800s by trying to dry the leaves over a fire. Or it could be flavoured like Earl Grey, so the the 1830s British invention, which uses the citrus fruit bergamot. Or scented teas, which use botanicals, which are not fruit or spices. So the most popular example would be jasmine. Um, so that's that's all the world of tea. That is all the tea. Other things that might be called tea could be infusions. Uh, and another thing, actually, that people sometimes mix up is tea tree oil. Uh, tea tree oil is not from, t- from from tea. It's a plant that's native to Australia, and it's not at all related to camellias. However, you can get oil from a tea plant called Camellia oleifera, which is used in China for cooking and skincare, and also for anti-corrosion on tools. sure yeah uh one more thing about the different types of tea the process of critically analyzing different types of tea and tasting it and smelling it and brewing is called cupping (laughs) oh you just handed to me that on the plate (laughs) in in the in the cupped palms of my hand uh um i've got some sort of local localish facts about tea i wanted to offer for you uh, and that's to do with um, kind of the seafaring nature of it and, and the clippers that ended up coming into trade in London. So I think the most famous clipper is the Cutty Sark, which uh, now lives in Greenwich. Mm-hmm. It's the world's only surviving extreme tea clipper ship. Extreme so tea clipper. Extreme. <laughs> so extreme clippers had 
uh, sharper bows than regular clippers, and that made them faster. And that was um, created especially for transporting tea quickly. That's what these ships were created for. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cutty Sark had a big fire in 2007, so it actually nearly wasn't the only surviving one. I do remember that happening. Um, 90% of the ship's hull um, is still original, though. So it, it sort of it managed to survive it quite well. Uh, Cutty Sark's maiden voyage was in 1870, and then it was taking wine and spirits and beer over to Shanghai, and then it would return with 1.3 million pounds of tea within it. And that voyage is a lot of tea, isn't it? Mm. Um, And that voyage lasted eight months. Can you imagine imagine what your journey would be like? Eight months on a ship with half of it, you're going over with wine and beer, and the other (sighs) half, you're coming back with tea. Well, they'd have half a ship of wine and beer by the time we get there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And by the time you're on the way back, you're going to need that tea. <laughs> yeah, I'd have had a Boston Tea Party moment and just chucked it all off. <laughs> Fuck it. If we, chuck it. if we chuck half of it off, we'll get there faster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so they kind of, you know, they, they fell out of favour once steam travel became more prevalent uh, and the Cutty Sock was still being used, but not to go over to China. Instead, it was shuttling wool between England and Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, by the 19th century, tea was so popular that great shipments of it were flooding into Britain, uh, in particular, the Port of London. And they <laughs> had tea clipper ships that raced um, here to be the first to unload their cargo. A bit like when we did the uh, Beaujolais episode. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Let's have a race back to London. Um, <laughs> the most famous great tea race happened in 1866. Mm. They did a 14,000 mile journey. And how much time do you think was between the first ship and the second ship to uh, get back? 14,000 mile journey. 14,000 mile journey. What would be the time gap between the first and second? Well, it depends if I was on board or not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's presume Um, there was no sabotage. A couple of days? 28 minutes. What? Can you imagine being in second place? You know, like, second, you're in second place and you find out you only missed winning that race by 28 minutes and you'd just gone 14,000 miles. Jeez, I kind of hoped it was going to be like, oh, we got, you know, struck by lightning in a storm and <laughs> nope. still managed to finish. No, 28,000. So close. So, um, several London docks were used by the tea ships, um, you know, to unload and store. Uh, St. Catherine Docks was probably the most well-known and in its peak, 32,000 tonnes of tea uh, from abroad came through here every year. So St. Catherine's Dock is just over the water from me. It's a very nice area. It's lovely. In fact, you sent me a picture of us uh, being there the other day uh, at Christmas time and we were very merry in St. Catherine's Docks. But they still do, um, (laughs) they still do round the world yacht races that, that finish that start and finish in St. Catherine's Docks. Mm-hmm. So every couple of years they go over there and I watch kind of these people come back and they've they've literally been kind of sailing around the world for a year. It's amazing. amazing. Mm. But that's emotion. It is emotion. Yeah, it's it's impressive that they do it as well. Mm-hmm. Um also Hayes Wharf, which is now known as Hayes Galleria, which is just between London Bridge Station and the River Thames. Um and also Shad Thames, so we're all still in very much my neighbourhood. 
um, were also tea warehouses. In the 19th century, about 80% of the dry goods imported into London arrived in Hayes Wharf. It was called the Larder of London. So it's now kind of rebuilt with this glass dome on top and they do acoustic music and all that sort of stuff and they have this ship fountain in it. It's very pretty. Um, And there's a pub in Hayes Galleria called the Horny Man at Hayes. (laughs) And, yes, and that's named after um, Horny Man's Tea, which used to be traded at Hayes Wharf. And that's after after Frederick John Horniman, who made his fortune as a tea trader in Victorian times. And he, um, because of kind of like the journeys around the world, uh, you know, finding tea and trading tea, um, he found kind of like all these interesting objects from countries he visited. And all of those are now in the Horniman Museum in Forest Hill. So if you go there, it's got like, all these random objects from around the world. It feels like mm-hmm. the least curated museum um, you will ever visit, but it's fascinating. It has all these like really interesting global culture trinkets. Um, so there you go. That's uh, that's kind of Clippers and Horny Man Museum and all of that business. Afternoon tea. Oh, yes, please. Shall I do a bit of that? Yeah. I mean, when you say that, are you going to bring me afternoon tea? No. I I do not have cakes and sandwiches and snacks for you at this point. Damn it. I'm sorry. Um, but I'll tell you where it came from. That helps. Yeah, all right. That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're in the 19th century for afternoon tea. And what's happening really is that we've got increased urbanization. You know, we're, we've, we're industrial revolution um, has, has fully kicked in. And there is gaslighting as well that is going on throughout England. All of that means that the evening meal is becoming later and later. So in the rural farming communities, the day is dictated by sunlight. So it starts and finishes, you know, when when the sun comes up and goes down. But the wealthier classes who kind of weren't hindered by that, they had had lighting, they had cities, they had industrialisation, they had longer working days. They were having their dinners closer to 9pm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lunch was still at midday. So they, it, it, by sort of the 19th century, you've got these periods of nine hours where they kind of aren't eating. So in 1840, the Duchess of Bedford, who was one of Queen Victoria's ladies in, in waiting, just thought, this is absolutely rubbish. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to wait that long between lunch and dinner. I think we can all sympathise. So she said, bring some tea and bread and butter and cake um to my room in the late afternoon <laughs> and um that sort of became fashionable in this afternoon ritual uh, you know it's something that obviously everyone was very keen to adopt <laughs> <laughs> because it meant they got tea and cake and bread and butter in the afternoon um, but it became very fashionable in the upper classes and then sort of soon spread across britain as a general kind of meal called tea um and then this is also the time when it went from being under China's control, um, you know, all the tea was coming from China, to a lot of it coming from Assam in India. So the tea also became much more affordable. The tax at this time went from 119% down to 12.5%. Mm-hmm. So we know that like everyone could afford to have, have tea and keep their stomachs full in the afternoon at that point. But people still wanted it to be a fancy experience. 
So even though the price of tea has gone down, that's when we see the rise of these really fancy porcelain tea sets. And that's so they can still kind of like show off their wealth, even though what they're drinking is now a lot cheaper. Um, people who put milk in first, uh, and those who begin with the tea and then add the milk second, um, that, that feels like a sort of scone, uh, scone scone, butter jam, cream jam scenario. It's one of those things that gets endlessly, endlessly debated, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't associate them with people that put milk in first. (laughs) So here's the thing. Um, at that time, when we had all these fancy porcelain cups uh, and tea bowls in the 18th and 19th century, it had a practical purpose because if you put the milk in first, um, the cool milk prevents it from shattering uh, the porcelain when you add hot tea. Right. So if you went tea first into fancy porcelain, it would shatter it, it would crack. So you had to put the milk in first. So that was a practical reason why it would have been milk first in those days. But also, science (laughs) tells us that is also the correct way to do it, to avoid destroying some of the enzymes that bind to the tannins, which makes the tea less bitter. So if you're putting milk in in order to make your tea less bitter, it will you'll need less of it if you put the milk in first. However, in practical terms, um, the in the tests they also found that when people put milk in first, they tended to put too much in, yeah. and then that ruined it. Mm-hmm. So swings and roundabouts, you know, like there's no there's no real right or wrong answer to it, but um, those are those are the facts and the traditions behind milk or tea first. Never milk first. I'm, I don't give a shit about the science. <laughs> and you certainly don't have fancy porcelain. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just lucky if it makes it in a mug. I don't even put milk in. I'm a black tea bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of afternoon tea, the last place I had afternoon tea was in Bali, which is very Ooh, fancy. Yeah, that is fancy. Hmm. It was because of like the pandemic. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have had afternoon tea somewhere else um, oh right when you said that i was like wait a minute it was lockdown so you had to no, go to no, bali no. for your no, tea it was, it was pre-pandemic when <laughs> right. we were allowed out of our houses yeah um, gotcha <clears throat> yeah my last holiday was there and i had afternoon tea there um which is when i discovered that uh tea is a massive part of indonesian culture hmm so children and adults enjoy multiple cups of tea a day. Um, each different region around Indonesia has its own customs and preferences. Um, so I'm just going to talk about Indonesian tea culture in general, and then I'll talk a bit more about Bali. Uh, so tea was introduced to Indonesia in the 1600s um, by Dutch colonists who were eager to replicate the success of English tea plantations in India. Mm-hmm. So um, they initially kind of tried to just mirror that, so they were experimenting with Chinese varieties of tea, but they quickly realised that the um, climate in Indonesia was more suited to, like, Assam teas and things like that. So the hot, humid climates of Java, Sumatra and Sulawesi are particularly very good for um, growing and cultivating tea. Um, so by the late 19th century, 
the Indonesian tea trade was thriving, and despite setbacks and disruption from World War II, it now ranks as the sixth largest producer of tea in the world. Oh, very good. Yes. So they um, predominantly produce black tea, but they do also um, produce a small amount of green tea also. Um, but Indonesians predominantly drink black tea, uh, but really, really, really sweet. They put a lot of sugar in there. Um, so they add the sugar before the water and they allow it to sit at the bottom of the pot without stirring it. Um, they sometimes add extra flavours. Um, they'll steep jasmine leaves in there for an extra kick. Um, but depending where you are in, in Indonesia, they have other regional variations. Some of them are quite interesting. Um, some of them are more what we're used to, so they'll add milk in. But other people will add lemon. Uh, some will add ginger. And some of them add raw egg to their tea. That's their sure. favourite way of taking their tea. Uh, some fun facts about tea in Indonesia. Please. Um, so there's a very popular tea in Java called Pocky Tea, P-O-C-I, Pocky Tea. It's a really, really fragrant uh, black tea and it's traditionally served in a clay teapot. And in order to preserve the fragrance and the richness from the previous brew, they never, ever wash their teapots. Ah, okay. Mm. Like Some, a sort of like a fancy skillet. Very. All the flavour keeps building. Yeah, I used to stand by that when I was a student. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> um, but um, they, they they do some people for hygiene reasons will wash their clay teapots, but they they prefer not to. Um, one thing I didn't mention when I was talking about tea bags was originally when tea bags were invented, they also came in two sizes. Uh, small or jumbo. So a jumbo tea bag is obviously more designed towards putting into a big teapot mm-hmm. and saving multiple, whereas you've got the smaller ones, which are single serve, single cup, which is what we're more accustomed to. But in Indonesia, one tea um, company, Sariwangi in particular, they still um, sell jumbo tea bags. Any uh, guesses as to how many cups you can get out of a jumbo tea bag? Oh, I'm going to say six. No, more. 27. More. <gasps> 100 cups of tea. <laughs> Calm down, it's 30. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so yeah, 30 cups of tea. It's a big old tea bag. Yeah. Um, another top tip, not top tip, fun fact. Uh, the Queen drinks Indonesian tea every day. Oh, Our queen. Um, mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned earlier, Sumatra is uh, very well known for its tea cultivating. And all tea that is made from that area is known as Cajo Aro. And it's recognised as one of the finest flavours in the world. Um, hence why the queen drinks it every day. So if you is ever she fancy? See it, she is fancy. I do want to try it now. But anyway, I want to talk about barley because I had afternoon tea there. Mm. Um, so barley is not really known for its tea growing it's got quite a, an interesting climate barley it's very unique so they've got volcanic soil high rainfall, high humidity a tropical climate, lots of mist cover so fantastic for growing plants um, but there's no w- winter period of dormancy there 
and mm-hmm. apparently when you grow in tea, it's said to really enrich the flavours. Um, so Barney isn't known for its tea cultivation. However, there is a chap that has started doing it in um, northern Bali, in the mountainous area of Batukaro. There's a guy called Wawan who has started his own tea cultivating. It's called a Duan tea. Um, it's 10 years old, which isn't massively old. Like, as you mentioned, it takes about five years for it to be kind of ready and good to go. But um, he has started producing some nice tea. And I found I wasn't able to taste any, unfortunately. But I have found some reviews online and people have said it's a very, very good tea. And they strongly believe that it's the kind of the volcanic soil and the kind of terroir of the area gives it enough flavour to kind of not miss the lack of winter dormancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, unfortunately when I was in Bali it was quite hard to get Balinese tea. So instead I was served with my afternoon tea, pandan tea, which I know you're going to argue that isn't really tea. <laughs> it's not, well, it's not, it's an infusion, it's not a tea, so. <laughs> I really enjoyed it though, so much so that I still have some in my cupboard because I bought loads of it to come home. Mm. So like you say, it's not really tea. It's made using the leaves of the pandan plant. Um, so they just boil the leaves in the water for a couple of minutes and then strain it through a cheesecloth. Then they can either drink it hot or chill it and drink it. Um, pandan is like a super plant. Um, it's got an enormous list of um, medicinal uses, headaches, fevers, um it supposedly helps joint pain, arthritis. Um, people also use it topically. They'll put it straight onto your skin if you've got sunburn or a wound mm-hmm. or skin problems. It's a, it's a wonder plant and it's delicious. But I'm going to talk about the snacks as well. I know this is a tea episode, but I had some <laughs> phenomenal snacks with my Bali afternoon tea. Because it wasn't uh-huh, like a traditional afternoon tea in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually went on the website and found the afternoon tea I had and it included it, you'll sense a theme and it was <laughs> very sweet <laughs> so deep fried battered banana mm-hmm. yes. uh, pandan crepes filled with sweet mm-hmm. coconut mm-hmm. black rice pudding with coconut milk mm. uh, rice flour muffins with caramel rice and coconut <laughs> did, did it give you a muffin worry? I had muffin worries. <laughs> uh, steamed cake in banana leaves and a sweet, sticky toffee cake. That all, so that all sounds incredible, but I have no idea how we'd eat it in one sitting. I did. I actually had it. We had it. Um, it was a floating afternoon tea. So we had it in our, in our pool on a big kind of raft, essentially. So I just kind of swam about the pool like a little hippo, occasionally eating bits of cake. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a strong image. <laughs> it was really good. It was, it was oh, on our honeymoon, it. so I've never looked more attractive. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just walking about, putting sticky things in my face. <laughs> honeymoon. Oh, and, oh. Then, and then cake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, delightful. Yes, Thank you. very nice. Um, I, do, I can think of a use of uh, pandan, which you didn't mention, which is... Um, it, well, in addition to it being a vanilla substitute, it's also a cockroach repellent. Yeah, that I, I read so much. That apparently, um, they use it as like a food colouring, everything. They just mm-hmm. Oh, I've, I've had like green coloured pandan cakes and stuff before, yeah. Very I mean, vibrant. 
the the pandan tea is like you know the intro to the simpsons you know when bart is skateboarding and that like fluorescent tube from the power mm-hmm. plant bounces up yeah yes. it's that color <laughs> that's like the well hail the inanimate carbon rod um i've got some i've got some just like extra bonus worldwide facts to close things off if you want them hit me china provides 36 percent of the world's tea africa i do realize africa is not a country it's a continent uh (laughs) provides 30 (laughs) percent of the world's tea Mm -hmm. which i think maybe not people don't necessarily know um in the US, 80% of the tea that is consumed is iced tea. They are not big Heathens. hot tea drinkers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in Mali, gunpowder tea is served in a series of three. So, um, kind of like you said about using the tea bag more than once. So, starting with the highest oxidization or strongest unsweetened tea, locally referred to as strong like death. <laughs> and then the second serving. Uh, where the same tea leaves are boiled again with some sugar um, is referred to as pleasant as life. And then the third one, where the same tea leaves are boiled for a third time with more sugar added, is called sweet as love. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, strong like death, pleasant as life, sweet as love. So they, they do reuse it three times in Mali, but just keep adding more sugar each time. Uh, in the UK, 63% of people drink tea daily. The annual per capita consumption in pounds is 4.28, which puts us in third place globally. Do you know who the top two are? Shiz. I mean, China's got to be one of the two. Nope. What? Indonesia? We're talking talking per capita rather than... Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, rather than total amount, because that would be different. (sighs) So, yeah, per, per person. I don't understand why we're not top. I, don't, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I tell you? Yeah. Second place is Ireland uh-huh. on 4.83. So they're only slightly above us. The top one, by a large margin, on 6.96 is Turkey. Ooh, of course. So they really have a lot of tea with lots of sugar. Uh, Mm -hmm. in it generally in kind of in smaller portions but they just drink a lot of it yeah of course they do they drink it in like nice small little glass yeah they do yeah they do um over to russia Mm -hmm. chifir chifir is a very strong russian tea which is associated with and brewed in um soviet detention centers essentially gulags (laughs) prisons (laughs) They have it. It is to be drunk very slowly, otherwise it causes vomiting. Oh my god. So making chifir involves brewing a lot of black tea for a very long time. So it might be left to brew overnight and it can be had either hot or cold. But they will will put enormous amounts of tea and then just like boil it all day. That sounds horrendous. It does sound horrendous. I don't understand why that's a thing you want to do, but... That's Russia. Um, and <laughs> the final one I think you're going to like. Mm, okay. Um, this is a speciality from Myanmar, which is known locally as La Pet. And it's pickled tea leaves. Oh, I so don't know. So pickled, 
Pickled tea leaves eaten with roasted sesame seeds, crispy fried beans, roasted peanuts, and fried garlic chips. Uh, you like I anything don't... pickled yeah, and fried? Yeah, I will. I'll try it. Yeah. <laughs> Where have we got to go? I'm shocked. I thought you were going to be into that. <laughs> Myanmar, okay. Myanmar. I'll whack yeah. it on the list. It's on the spreadsheet. All right, put it on the spreadsheet. We'll give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can at least find a Myanmar restaurant somewhere in London we can try. <laughs> oh i think um i think those are all the facts i've got for you today tea is such an enormous subject in history in and of itself there's so much i didn't cover but um hopefully you've got a sense of like how impactful it's been on culture and society i mean the two wars that says enough (laughs) yeah exactly and so our teacups have run dry, which means it's time to lapsang our souchongs and bitch the pots. Cheers, everybody! <laughs> bitch that pot. Bye. <laughs> I was delayed. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> do you need another tea? <laughs> Are you, do you need some alcohol? Are you too sober? Is that the problem? <laughs> should, we, should we go back to booze next episode? Or land you can always hear me singing this song. Show me the way to go home. By a chap called Adolf Rambold, and that was for the German company Tikan. Um, quickly followed then in 1930 by a heat sealed pipe. Oh God, I'm gonna start that again. While you've stopped, can <laughs> I just let you know that I've instantly got Tikan play their game going round in my head. <laughs> Play that game your way. <laughs> um, Sorry, after, carry on. 